Shalom, this is Gamil Shmalo. Cheskel 32 is the last of our four chapters of rebuke against Egypt. It is composed of two distinct sections, but they are connected to each other and to the previous chapters by a clear leitmotif. Um, the chapter is clearly dated in the year following the destruction of Jerusalem. So there is no suggestion that these prophecies were intended to warn the Jews not to rely on their Egyptian ally. That's all in the past. These are chapters written in the future tense, making a, a final reckoning with Egypt, but which also serve as enduring lessons about leadership and governance, both of the state and of the self. Uh, the first part of the chapter revisits the image of Pharaoh, the great crocodile of the Nile, that we saw three days ago in chapter 29. But here, he is no longer crouching in the river. Here he is thrusting forward in the streams, churning the water with his feet, and uh, fouling its channels. Pharaoh is so unsettled in our chapter 32 that he's not even happy in his role as the ancient Egyptian crocodile god. Now he wants to be a young lion among the nations. In short, Pharaoh was ambitious. He wanted to get up out of his local Nile and project his power among the nations. He saw the collapse of the other great superpower, Ashur, only about 20 years earlier, and he sensed that the time was ripe for him to assert himself on a more international stage. So he started making alliances against the young upstart Babylonia, including Jerusalem, and um, at the point of a sword, perhaps, with Tyre, with Tzor. The problem was, he wasn't an international superpower. He wasn't a lion. He was just a powerful, but local, Egyptian ruler. He was a crocodile. And so when it came time to confront Nebuchadnezzar head-on, he couldn't follow through. He had this inflated self-image, and he seduced Jerusalem to rely on him. He made a couple of distracting gestures of support, but ultimately he abandoned his Jewish allies to just twist in the wind. Yechezkel effectively tells him, you want to leave the security of your river? Well, I'll drag you out and I'll show you what happens to crocodiles on dry land. They get flayed and butchered. They're fed to the birds and to the beasts. But at least you can serve as a lesson for other overly ambitious rulers everywhere. The second part of our chapter is a, it's a dirge, mourning the future downfall of Egypt. More likely, it's a mocking parody of a dirge. The theme here is that, well, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword, and then they shall all go down to the grave together, slain by the sword, uh, particularly if they are uncircumcised. And that's a strange refrain, and it appears again and again, quote, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. By the way, it's even more difficult to understand if Herodotus was correct when he wrote that the ancient Egyptians actually were, in fact, circumcised. So, of course, the idea of being uncircumcised represents uncontrolled passion. As we saw back in Yirmiyahu 9, you could even be physically circumcised and still be uncircumcised in spirit. The most basic, or perhaps base, passion is sexual. But anyone with any out-of-control lust 
could be described as uncircumcised, whether the lust is for money or fame or power. In our chapter, Yechezkel counts the nations that were uncircumcised, who had an overwhelming drive for blood and power, and that was the undoing of all of them. Ashur, Elam, Meshech Tuval, Edom, and now it was Egypt, now it was Egypt's turn. It, it's impossible to psychoanalyze a historical figure thousands of years after he lived, but I believe the prophet is trying to teach us some fundamental human truths that continue to ring true. It seems that a leader who lacks an accurate self-conception may then be fundamentally restless, uncircumcised. Like a schoolhouse bully, without a proper sense of self, he or she has a need for validation, sometimes leading to violent demonstrations of power. Sometimes that will be through grand acts of war, and sometimes it will be with petty bursts of anger. The pharaoh of our chapter, Pharaoh Apiris, was known for both. If you're a gamer, you may know the Palace of Apiris from Assassin's Creed, but he was made famous much earlier by Herodotus. He really was the crocodile of Egypt for over 20 years. But after he failed to help Jerusalem, he turned around to fight Greek invaders who were settling in the land of his western neighbor, Libya. The Greeks defeated uh, the Egyptians, Apiris Egyptians, who then blamed Pharaoh Apiris. They suspected that he had deliberately sent his soldiers to their doom so that he would be more secure over the rest of the Egyptians. It seems that his soldiers felt that Apiris was somehow, he felt insecure. And so the surviving soldiers and the friends of the fallen, well, they openly revolted. Apiris sent one of his generals to talk them down. His name was Amasis. But when he came to speak with the rebels, they convinced him that he, he Amasis, he should be king rather than Apiris. Amasis accepted. Apiris sent another messenger to bring back Amasis. But now, and, and now I'm quoting Herodotus, quote, Amasis, who was on horseback, rose up and farted, telling the messenger to take that back to Apiris. So this messenger returned without Amasis, and when Apiris saw that Amasis was missing, he, he flew into a rage, and he had the messenger's ears and nose cut off. This act of petty, unjust violence convinced the rest of Amasis's remaining friends to change sides, ultimately leading to his downfall. And that's the story from Herodotus. And Yechezkel paints us a similar picture of Pharaoh Apiris, the insecure pharaoh with low self-esteem, who can't suffer an insult, who hungers for external validation, and who has something of an anger management problem. He is the crocodile who would be Lion King, who goes to war to prove himself, but abandons allies when the going gets tough. Uncomfortable in his own skin, he's ever restless, uncircumcised, muddying his river, spilling needless blood. When he's finally laid down, dead, next to his soldiers and the soldiers of all these other nations who died for the worst of reasons, will he finally find peace? The Tana of Rebbe Elazar, when studying our chapter, taught that he would not. Uh, quote, At the time when a wicked person perish, perishes from the world, three groups of angels of destruction go out toward him. One says to him, There is no peace 
says Hashem, concerning the wicked. That's quoting Isaiah 48. And, and one says to him, quote, you shall lie down in sorrow. And that's quoting Isaiah 50. And one says to him, go down and be laid with the circum- uncircumcised, quoting our Yechezkel 32. It seems that Rabbi Elazar and Yechezkel before him want us to learn a profound human truth. Only in this world can we learn to understand our own hearts to make commitments we intend to keep. Only in this world can we find peace and make peace.